0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Thanks so much for being here. It is such a pleasure and a delight. Uh, Many thanks to uh, EICC for inviting me. Uh, to this really, really great event, this really great venue, and this really great food. Thanks, Randy, for tipping me off not to show up in my cowboy boots and jeans, the a big belt buckle, 10-gallon hat. Probably wouldn't have gone over so well. Actually, I never wear cowboy boots or a 10-gallon hat, so I'm just kidding. Uh, well... I am so glad to be here. Uh, I echo everything that's been said so far. This is an important issue. I think Christians so often think of the culture wars as certain obvious issues, uh, whether it be abortion, homosexuality, same-sex marriage. Uh, But we are in a culture war when it comes to money and when it comes to economics. And partly what I hope to accomplish today is to show um, that there is a worldview conflict going on over the question of economics. And the, 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 the hot-button issue, the way it uh, arises in our culture today, is with the rhetoric of wealth inequality. It has been declared uh, by the U.S. President Barack Obama as one of the great civil rights issues of our time, wealth inequality. What are we to think of that? Well, 2014, this uh, present year, brought to us one of those periodic publishing events. Lots of books are published. Very few of them have events. Sometimes this event is so sensational, people can't stop talking about it for years and years and years. Think of perhaps J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. Of course, in her defense, she published seven books, so of course the event continued for a long time. Alas, with the increased uh, internet noise, um, the attention deficit disorder that accompanies the 24-7 news cycle, the event of Thomas Piketty's capital in the 21st century seems to have lasted just a few weeks, but... Make no mistake, it was intended as an event. It was lauded in all uh, newspapers of note as being a seminal work of economics. Uh, just because the hype lasted only a few weeks does not, me, does not make it less noteworthy. Because books can and often do lie dormant for many years before producing fruit. That could certainly be said for the book that Thomas Piketty was uh, uh, giving a hat tip to in his title, Karl Marx's Capital. Piketty is a French economist who assigned himself the task of once and for all proving that capitalism as an economic system contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. This thesis has been argued for centuries, but Piketty has built for himself, rather ironically, what venture capitalists call an unfair advantage. He has put together immense sets of economic data, heretofore unknown and unavailable. So what used to be purely an ideological debate has, he believes, become a matter of empirical observation. Well, my real interest today is to inquire into some of the presuppositions involved in the widespread contemporary concern about economic inequality. Uh, But some explanation of the current state of thinking is necessary, and it does not get more current than Thomas Piketty. There's no need to let his impressive collection of data overwhelm and obscure what is actually a very simple thesis which he presents as a formula. R is greater than G. R is greater than G. R stands for the rate of capital, or rate of return, excuse me, on capital, the accumulation of wealth. Um, The accumulation of wealth, the rate of return on capital, is greater than the rate of overall economic growth. This is, he believes, as close to an economic law as we have. R is greater than G. It means that due to the miracle of compound interest, or curse, depending on how you view it, income provided by capital investments of the haves will always grow faster than the income generated by the have-nots. In other words, the have-nots cannot, in the nature of the case, ever catch up to the haves or level the playing field. On the contrary, Piketty believes that Marx was essentially right with his theory of infinite accumulation. As the inequality increases, the haves barring some intervention, will continue to acquire and control more and more until they own everything. Well, while he notes that that's an unlikely turn of events, he is variously concerned, alarmed, and disturbed because it forebodes a breaking point where social tension produced by extreme economic inequality leads to revolution and bloodshed. It's not a full-throated endorsement of Marx, exactly, but nevertheless, it is something of a begrudging point in his favor. Sorry for that revolution, but you greedy capitalists really had it coming. So Thomas Piketty is, in other words, here to rescue capitalism from itself and to save democracy. Democracy. It is a novel posture for one seeking to re- rehabilitate Karl Marx, I grant. Well, others are far more capable than I at evaluating the empirical merits of Piketty's theory and his data sets, but I will offer a few observations. His insistence that the question of wealth inequality must be analyzed on a strictly empirical data-driven basis does not, strangely enough, extend equally to his own proposals. He himself admits that his solution to the problem is, quote-unquote, utopian, a term the average reader may be forgiven for interpreting as impossible. He proposes that wealth must be simply confiscated from the haves and redistributed by way of a global wealth tax Readers will look in vain for the charts, graphs, and historical data that demonstrate the possible or even probable success of this kind of proposal. This is not surprising since the record of such experiments is quite abysmal. You see, Marxism always boasts of its scientific credentials, but soon enough degenerates into mythology, which is its native atmosphere. If this is, as Piketty would have it, a world where those with great wealth inevitably seek to benefit only themselves and their own interests, who then is to be entrusted the task of confiscating, controlling, and distributing this global largesse? Piketty fails to answer Milton Friedman's immortal inquiry. Just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. These angels are usually devils in disguise. Everybody understands we roll our eyes at Plato's suggestion that the very best rulers of a republic are, surprise, surprise, philosophers. Right? We roll our eyes. How self-serving is that? Well, maybe... Maybe we, our eyebrows ought to raise just ever so slightly when an economist who decries the temptations of great wealth nevertheless proposes that he and his academic guild be the ones to control the world's wealth. Moreover, Piketty treats economic classes in remarkably static fashion. He speaks of top and bottom wealth brackets as though they were frozen collections of people. He must. His theory is that there's nothing to impede the continued growth of capital investments except the occasional drastic historical event like a world war. In essence, once rich, always richer, forever. Once poor, always poorer, forever. But this ignores one of the most compelling and empirically verifiable features of free market systems, and that is the possibility of upward mobility. Piketty himself turns to uh, the Forbes list of the world's wealthiest people to show that the rich today are much richer than they were 25 years ago. Only he leaves out the significant fact that the two lists separated by more than two decades contain different people. In fact, Jonah Goldberg notes that uh, fewer than 10% of the 400 wealthiest Americans in 1982 were still on the list in 2012. How is this possible on Piketty's theory? It seems he's fallen here for a common fallacy. The top 1% is an abstract category. It's not an ontological description of living, breathing people. One can be top 1% one year and a mere top 5% the next. Somebody may join you there today or displace you there tomorrow. Not only is there remarkable fluidity between economic classes in a, in a modern free market system, there's economic fluctuation of the discrete classes. It is not noticed often enough, and certainly Thomas Piketty is not impressed, that what we mean by poverty has changed drastically in the past 30 years. It has changed because it's become far less a problem. According to a seminal study on global poverty by Yale University and the Brookings Institution, in 1981, a total of 52% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, defined as not being able to afford housing and food. 52% of people in 1981 couldn't afford housing or food. 30 years later, that number is 15%. That's remarkable. 52 to 15 in three decades. In other words, not only have the rich become richer, but the poor have become richer too. I mean, even when it comes to poverty uh, of the less extreme kind, okay, not just housing and food, Um, It's commonplace in North America for people designated as officially poor to have housing, food, air conditioning, and cable television. But these facts never lessen the level of shrill alarm among the fact-based economists like Thomas Piketty. They still cry that the sky is falling. The Occupy Wall Street crowd continues its periodic demonstrations, rousing themselves from their $2,000-a-month studio apartments in Manhattan, (laughs) stopping to pick up a Starbucks coffee along the way, and then tweeting photos of themselves on their iPhones. Or if they're not among the cool kids, you know, their Samsung Galaxy. Blackberry is so last century, Randy. (laughs) Look, if Marie Antoinette were around, her let-them-eat-cake line would lose all of its irony. They got plenty of cake. With poverty so extreme, I hardly think that armed revolution is right around the corner. Look, arguably, other than a new insight... Let me rephrase that. Other than arguably a new insight on the role of return on capital investments in wealth inequality and some impressive new data sets, capital in the 21st century contains nothing new. But there is one further irony that begs for some exploration. Piketty worries that free market capitalism might produce inequalities so extreme they will result In Bloody Revolution. Now, this is odd for a couple of reasons. First, we can trace the explosion of Western economic prosperity to the Industrial Revolution and ask where have bloody revolutions taken place in the last 150 years? Well, the obvious ones occurred in Russia and in China along with many smaller uprisings that that generally took place in colonized countries. It's fair to say that inequality had much to do with these conflicts, but nobody can seriously argue that these inequalities, which include much more than just economic inequalities, can be laid at the feet of free markets. But it's odd for yet another reason. The seeds of modern revolution were sown by a man who spoke Thomas Piketty's native tongue, both literally and ideologically. 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Modern revolution began with a particular sort of French wine. W-H-I-N-E. A particular sort of French wine. One that matured over decades until Robespierre finally uncasked it and found it full of blood. What an irony. Thomas Piketty worries that capitalism will produce revolution. It hasn't. But historically, it was a man who shared Piketty's obsession with wealth inequality who actually gave birth to the French Revolution. It's unlikely by Piketty's own admission that mere economic inequality in modern capitalist societies will result in blood, but we do know for certain that stoking hysteria about it does. His book is alarming, but not for the reason he imagines. Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, began his Part two of his famous book, Discourse on the Origins of Inequality, in this way. Quote, the first man who, after enclosing a piece of ground, took it into his head to say, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. How many crimes, how many wars, how many murders, how many misfortunes and horrors would that man have saved the human species who, pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditches, should have cried to his fellows, Be sure not to listen to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong equally to us all and the earth itself to nobody. Close quote. Wars, murders... Misfortunes and horrors came, in other words, at the advent of private property. The Apostle Paul may have written, For sin entered the world, and through sin, death. But Rousseau conceptually replaced that sin with property. For property entered the world, and through property, death. For Rousseau, the real fall of man was not a vertical theological breach, an alienation or breach between God and humanity. It was an economic one between man and man. Inequality begins at the precise moment when there is a have and a have not. In Rousseau's mythology, and that is in fact what his entire essay is a mythology private property soon led to the need for new customs and institutions like families and tribes for human beings to make alliances and protect their economic interests evil profit motive motive tribalism greed check we got those okay Eventually, estates grew so large they comprised all of the land, and then, quote, it became impossible for one man to aggrandize himself, but at the expense of some other. Zero-sum game, check. Any of this ringing a bell. And the have-nots, of course, were forced to live in complete dependence on the haves. Labor as perpetual slavery, check. And hence, Rousseau writes began to flow according to the different characters of each, domination and slavery, or violence and rapine. Close quote. As his creation myth continues, it was at this point that the haves realized that they had a problem. They were few, and the have-nots were many. No force of argument could persuade the mob that their property, such as it is, was somehow legitimately theirs. In fact, Rousseau writes this, quote, It availed them nothing to say, "'Twas I built this wall. I acquired this spot by my labor. Who traced it out for you?' Another might object. And what right have you to expect payment at our expense for doing that we, that we did not oblige you to do, close quote. President Obama's quip to the entrepreneur, you didn't build that? Check. It was at this point, says Rousseau, that the rich man, thus pressed by necessity, at last conceived the deepest project that ever entered the human mind. This was to employ in his favor the very forces that attacked him and make them adopt other institutions as favorable to his pretensions as the law of nature was unfavorable to them. In short, the rich man lured the masses with promises of a new institution. The state. By embodying rules of justice and peace, the state will, quote, secure the weak from oppression, restrain the ambitious, and secure to every man the possession of what belongs to him, close quote. This was, for Rousseau, a fool's bargain since the formation of civil society merely codified the status quo. It, quote, increased the fetters of the weak and the strength of the rich. Hey, you get that? It increased the fetters of the poor and the strength of the uh, the rich. Rich get richer, poor get poorer. It irretrievably destroyed natural liberty, he says. Fixed forever the laws of property and inequality. Changed an artful usurpation into an irrevocable title. And for the benefit of a few ambitious individuals subjected the rest of mankind to perpetual labor, servitude, and misery. The capitalist state as a rigged system to keep the proletariat in grinding slavery and poverty? Check. You see, we see in Rousseau the emergence of an ideology one whose replicated DNA can be traced directly to the French Revolution and beyond. So far beyond, we find it in the pages of Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. One wonders if the blood washed from guillotines has permanently infected Parisian water. I, for one, find it chilling that the very first words of Piketty's book, are taken directly from the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the Charter of the French Revolution. Quote, social distinctions can be based only on common utility, close quote. As Piketty gives a broad interpretation of that phrase, it means that inequality is only acceptable if it is, quote, in the interest of all and in particular the most disadvantaged social groups, close quote. And wealth, wealth is not the kind of social distinction in the nature of the case that is based on common utility. Not everybody owns equal wealth. It is therefore fair game for coercive state redistribution. The lack of self-awareness is most striking to me. Rousseau Rousseau himself seemed to realize that his ideology was based on a mythology. He frankly admitted in his his, uh, essay on the origins of inequality, I'm writing a mythology. I have no idea if any of this is true, but it makes sense to me. But Piketty pretends that this is all a matter of empirical data and good scientific thinking. If the past century is any lesson, there are few things more harmful to human health than collectivist ideologues reorganizing society on the basis of science, or doing so, for that matter, for our own good. Like the deadly clashes of the 20th century, the contemporary conflict over wealth inequality is not a mere disagreement about science. It's not a disagreement about data. It is a clash over completely antithetical visions of reality. At bottom, what we have is a clash of rival theologies. Rousseau and Piketty, you see, have doctrines of creation. A doctrine of sin, a doctrine of humanity, a doctrine of salvation, and indeed, a doctrine of God. You know, the picture Genesis 1 and 2 provides uh, is a cosmos full of splendid unity and coherence, as well as distinction and difference. The text overflows... With descriptions of God distinguishing things, distinguishing between things. Waters below, waters above, light and darkness, day and night, sun and moon, birds of the air, fish of the sea, and finally, humanity itself created, male and female. There's great diversity in creation, and there is also hierarchy in creation, God blesses, He commissions human beings to rule over the world, and especially the garden in which He placed them. The creation myth of the French egalitarians, on the other hand, involves a world of strict uniformity. It imagines that inequality or hierarchy is somehow inherently deviant from the way things ought to be. Mind you, they never actually give an argument for why this is the case. It is simply assumed as the bedrock presupposition. In fact, many reviewers, <clears throat> many reviewers notice that Thomas Piketty nowhere explains why economic inequality in and of itself is problematic. Martin Wolf of the Financial Times, in an otherwise glowing review, noted that one weakness of the book is, quote, that it does not deal with why soaring inequality matters. Essentially, Piketty simply assumes that it does, close quote. Well, precisely, this assumption has been built in since the 18th century. Notice further, their doctrine of sin. For Rousseau and Piketty, basic human dysfunction is purely exterior, not internal. Joe remarked on this in in his talk. This externalizing of sin. Remember, according to Rousseau's uh, mythology, the first man to expose and refuse the first claim to ownership would have saved the human race from every subsequent bloody war and misfortune. Sin, in this worldview, is not an ethical breach between God and man and between humans. Sin is a physical thing. It's the accumulation of property that begets all human dysfunction, conflict, and death. Just like Buddhism, actually, if you think about it. The things produce the dysfunction. The blame for greed, in other words, is not laid on my covetous heart. It is the other fellow's fault for having something or claiming to have something that I don't. It's his fault. Sin is exterior, does not reside in the human heart. Now, this doctrine of sin leads directly to a certain conception of the human person. Since human beings have not undergone a radical ethical corruption, which we would traditionally call the fall, they are, in fact, inherently good. Human beings are inherently good. They may be, for the time being, mired and confused, in a deviant civilization full of so-called private property with all its associated ills, but this can be overcome. They can again be perfected to their natural egalitarian state. And naturally, of course, that salvation must come by those already perfected, the enlightened masters who must be given the power to right all the wrongs and lead humanity To its destiny. So we have a doctrine of creation. We have a doctrine of sin. We have a doctrine of humanity and anthropology. And all of this is crucially important, of course, because doctrines of salvation or redemption always rest on prior beliefs about what the ideal is. Redemption presupposes creation. What do I mean by that? Think think for a moment in your head about the rewords, what I call the rewords of the New Testament. Redemption. What is that re-signifying? Redemption is a buying back. A restoration of a former state of affairs. Well, there was another one: restoration. Restoration. Regeneration. Renewal. Reconciliation. Okay? You're restoring. Restoring some original thing. Well, if one's view of the original state, the state of creation, is a purely egalitarian uniformity, then salvation must be the restoration of a purely egalitarian state of affairs. That's what we're trying to get back to. If you worship equality in the beginning, you will seek, above all else, equality at the end. Since property is what brought inequality and the imperfection of man, redemption for the Rousseauian Romantic is the eradication, or at least the equitable distribution, of property, which then brings equality, which then brings utopia. Rather ironic that that is the very word Thomas Piketty chose to describe his own proposals of a global wealth tax, utopian. But behind all of this, behind all of this is a defective view of God. The basic standpoint from which Rousseau operated, and one shared derivatively by Piketty, is that civilization with its culture and its commerce, simply cannot be trusted. Free people engaging in free exchange and free enterprise, that is, not committing any ethical breach of any kind, like defrauding others. Okay? Free people engaged in these things does not bring desirable results. We therefore must replace divine providence. We have to tidy up. We have to even out. We've got to rearrange the natural outcomes with which God has chosen to bless economic activity. This is not just an attack on God's sovereignty, although it is clearly that. This is an attack on God's goodness. If wealth and prosperity are bad things, and if God seems to unevenly reward economic activity with wealth and prosperity, then God is either incompetent or evil. And so, as these proposals inevitably go, the almighty state must take the reins and correct God's mistakes. We should never tire of repeating that the 20th century has amply illustrated that such proposals result in the very thing from which the likes of Rousseau and Piketty claim to be saving us, bloodshed and misery. Well, with all due respect to my friends on the conservative right, we need more than a rival economic system. We need more than rival policies. We need a rival theology. It turns out that the defenders of freedom and prosperity need look no further than the theology that originally sparked the very economic flourishing we seek to defend. Its roots stretch back into the medieval period, but the catalyst of the modern explosion of economic energy is found in a very different sort of Frenchman. I speak, of course, of John Calvin. Well, given the common caricature of the great reformer of Geneva, this might appear to be a strange choice. Uh, The French fatalist, Cuts a severe figure, allegedly cold, aloof, tyrannical, obsessed with predestination. How could lovers of freedom find intellectual resources in the thinking of such a man? Well, to that I turn. Uh, To begin with, there is his rather notoriously dim view of human nature. Far from human dysfunction being something external to us, Calvin taught the doctrine of total depravity. Now, by this, he didn't mean that each and every human being is as utterly evil as possible. Rather, he meant that the ethical corruption of sin reaches to the very core of our being and therefore taints everything we think do. Or say. Well, one can find no better account for why authority, particularly coercive civil authority, must be diffused among the many instead of concentrated among the few. As a matter of fact, the American founders actually fashioned their three branches of government precisely by this rationale. Human beings are thoroughly corrupted by sin. There are no angels who are going to organize society for us. Angels with whom we can safely deposit all authority for our well-being, much less trust and manage and disperse global wealth. Here is a doctrine of sin we may find useful. Moreover, Calvin's reputation as a grim figure makes it all makes all the more striking his abundant delight in the natural order. You see Calvin did not see civilization, culture and commerce as something deviant like Rousseau. He saw it as the very hand of God. An invisible hand we might say that Adam Smith later made famous. Although we must credit Martin Luther with restoring the idea of vocation or calling from its subspiritual conception in the Middle Ages, being a merchant in the Middle Ages was less spiritual, we owe it to Luther for recovering the idea of vocation or calling. It was Calvin who truly carried out the principle. All of life for Calvin was the service of, of God, living as he called it, corum Deo, before the face of God. This is a vocation just as much for the merchant as it is the monk. Herman Bavinck, great nineteenth-century Dutch theologian, says this: quote, "Calvin sees the whole of life steeped in the light of divine glory." As in all nature there is no such creature which does not reflect the divine perfection, so in the rich world of men there is no vocation so simple, no labor so mean as not to be suffused with the divine splendor and subservient to the glory of God's name. Close quote. And Calvin took this principle even beyond vocation. He rescued the possessions of life. From the ascetic mindset of much medieval theology, while he certainly insists on the appropriate use of material possessions, he utterly rejects the notion that they are somehow unspiritual or immoral. Bavink again quote, "Calvin maintains that all these possessions are gifts of God, designed not merely to provide for our necessities, but also bestowed for our enjoyment and delight." When God, or, when God adorns the earth with trees and plants and flowers, when He causes the vine to grow which makes glad the heart of man, when He permits man to dig from out the earth the precious metals and stones which shine in the light of the sun, all this proves that God does not mean to restrict the use of earthly possessions to the relief of our absolute necessities, but has given them to man also for enjoyment of life. Prosperity, abundance, and luxury are also gifts of God to be enjoyed with gratitude and moderation. So ends Bavink. Even more noteworthy for purposes here is that other early magisterial reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Zwingli, all strictly adhered to the medieval notion that because of the unproductive nature of money... Charging interest was the sin of usury. Calvin, on the other hand, standing alone among this number, did not believe that money was unproductive. He argued that charging interest on capital is not sinful. He maintained that only the sins of commerce should be rejected, like fraud and theft, but that commerce in and of itself should be regarded as a calling, well-pleasing to God and profitable to society. You see, Calvin always sought to distinguish between the institution of God and its subsequent corruption by humans. Whereas for Rousseau and Piketty, commerce or at least in its natural outcomes, is corruption. Civilization is corruption. Moreover, Calvin did not believe in bare uniformity. He believed that every creature and every calling had its own nature. Church and state, family and society, agriculture, commerce, art and science are all institutions and gifts of God. But each in itself is a special revelation of the divine will. Calvin thus sought to mean the diversity of God's creation and institutions. So that, for example, contrary to Rousseau and Piketty, the state or civil society is not to be confused with the economic marketplace. They are not the same thing. Calvin would not have been impressed by the recent declaration by the Democratic National Committee in the United States that, quote, government is the only thing we all belong to, close quote. But what about that dreadful doctrine of predestination and God's absolute sovereignty? Surely I must toss Calvin under the bus somewhere along here. Shouldn't I? Well, far from being a sterile fatalism that calls for resignation, it is the very thing that overcomes the constant temptation for the state to become its own providence. Rearranging or fixing outcomes outside its jurisdiction. That is, outcomes that are not the result of injustice, which would be its legitimate jurisdiction, but, but natural outcomes of labor and free exchange, that is, wealth. Furthermore, Calvin saw the will of God, the absolute will of God, not as an inhibitor of human enterprise, but its catalyst. If labor and investment is a means is a means that brings material reward. Then it is nothing less than the good and gracious will of God and therefore may be pursued to the fullest for His glory and our good. What greater incentive can there be that this activity and this award, this reward has as its ultimate basis, its ultimate foundation, the complete absolute approval of God's sovereign will. That is incentive. It is no wonder that modern free market systems and the astounding economic prosperity they produce developed in broadly Calvinistic societies. This is a theology of freedom. Sin is the problem, not stuff. Authority should be limited and dispersed. Every man, merchant, and minister has a God glorifying vocation. Culture and commerce are societal goods, the state has a limited sphere and prosperity is the sovereign gift and blessing of God to be enjoyed, even beyond our necessities. One of the questions, it seems to me, facing the modern free market movement is whether we can retain the house without this foundation. Can a purely secular account really produce the same fruits? Or are we instead breathing the last wisping fumes of this high-octane theology and pretending that our replacement is something of substance? Well, for me, I say, if Rousseau and Piketty bring a pseudo-theology to the fight, We need nothing less than true theology to meet them. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.